0: All right, the world wants unity around shallow goals, like getting along, like an election, or something like climate change. But what is missing from secular goals, the world's goals, is the ultimate need of us all to give glory to the true and living God. If you watch football you'll see at the end zone on most fields are printed these words it takes all of us. And the other end says end racism. However, if you were to put at the end zone give god the glory do his name <laughs> it takes all of us. <laughs> like that would not go over well. It would not be very popular uh in any In any sense even our country who claims to be a christian country that's not going to unify unify us at uh because the world and i looked at the some poll from new hampshire of the republicans in new hampshire that were i guess voting yesterday what percentage of them claim to be born again christian uh or evangelical christian and it was 21 percent said they were, and 79% of Republicans that voted said they weren't. Like, well, that may or may not be accurate. Um, But the vast majority of people around us, especially in New England, uh, don't even claim to be born again or evangelical. So the goals that our part of the country has are going to be different than Christian goals. When we gather as God's people... We have this goal in mind, and we gather Sunday, Wednesday. What is our goal? We're giving God glory. We must worship God with how He has prescribed. We can't worship God how we want. It takes that takes careful preparation and attention to His Word. So, what we see in this Old Testament passage is the preparation for giving God glory. And we're going to see how God responds to that at the end of our uh, section of Scripture. And we only have 14 verses to look at today, well, 13, so we can look at those in detail. Next week, we're also going to have a short uh, passage to look at as Solomon starts praying and blessing uh, blessing the people. So 2 Chronicles 5, we already looked at verse 1, so we're going to start in verse 2. From the time that Solomon finishes building the temple Uh, we have it's the eighth month of of the year and when they actually uh dedicate the temple with many many sacrifices and the prayers that solomon's going to offer in second Chronicles six and first kings uh eight uh is the seventh month so some commentators say what was it really the seventh month was it really the eighth month what we probably should conclude is the temple was finished in the eighth month of one year. And then it took 11 months of preparation to get everything organized. And this is a massive amount of organization. And then they're ready to have all of the people there. They're there at a time it's called the Feast of Booths, uh, a time of celebration of when they were brought out of Egypt three times a year, the Israelites gathered. This is one of those times. And he, it took, And this is the time when it was most joyful. The joyful celebration was in the seventh month, the Feast of Booths, when they reconstructed booths around Jerusalem, uh, tents. um, And they stayed in tents for a week, and they rejoiced in God delivering them from Egypt. That was the time when Solomon dedicates the temple. And to have 11 months of preparation, we'll see all that went into it. So preparing for God's arrival. Why did Solomon build a temple? He tells us why, so that God would be among his people, that they could see the glory of God. They should worship around God's glory, God's presence with them in a permanent way, not in that tabernacle way where the tabernacle could be moved, but in a more permanent way. And all the preparation that David made all of the time, seven years that Solomon made was so that they, that as best as humans, humanly possible, this temple was going to magnify God's name. That's what Solomon says was the purpose of building it uh, and all the preparation that went into it, detail after detail, gold, talent after gold talent, uh, in the Holy of Holies especially. Um, it is a magnificent building that Solomon uh, and those around him erected. Verse uh, 2 of Second Chronicles 5. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel. And he assembles them in Jerusalem to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. You may think that Jerusalem and Zion, the city of David, are the same. But at this time, Solomon is going to vastly expand the city of David, Zion, they're actually next to each other. Okay. And just like today, probably, um, Lowell and Drake, it. it's hard to say where does Lowell begin or stop and Drake begin as you go down our street here and it's just almost seamless unless you had that sign. Um, but there was probably a time when Lowell was <laughs> there and Drake, it's here, but over time has it expanded and now they're together. Before uh, Jerusalem and Zion were one city. They were two and the Ark of the Covenant was with David in um, in the city of David, in Zion. and the the temple's going to be built in Jerusalem right next door. Um, but they're two they're still separated until Solomon and other kings make them one uh, one large city. <coughs> uh, and so he's going to erect the he's going to assemble, all the elders, um, and then they wait till, um, let's look at verse 3, and then all the men of Israel assembled before the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. So there's only one feast, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents that is in the seventh month. We know that from the rest of uh, the Old Testament. This was one of those times where all the men of Israel come and leave their property, and they come and they worship God in Jerusalem and celebrate um, the time when the Israelites were in booths for 40 years. This is that week where they celebrate that, and that's the seventh month. So it it took time to gather all the heads of the tribes, all the fathers' houses, all the leaders, and all all the men of Israel are here in Jerusalem in the seventh month, 11 months after the temple was finished, before they dedicated, verse 4, all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. You remember the last time the ark was moved was a time of great celebration. All the leaders of Israel were there, the Levites were there, they made sure they did it the right way so that, remember, Uzzah died when they didn't do it the right way, and it took months of preparation before that ark to be moved and David assembles everybody. This is a generation earlier, and they celebrate and feasting. David gives everybody some food and sends them, sends them away. That was years ago. Now next generation's here, and they take similar precautions uh, to make sure everything's organized and they're doing everything um, how it's supposed to be doing. So it took 11 months to move everything into storehouses, prepare and consecrate all the people, all the priests, all the Levites for this special occasion. It took a lot of preparation time, and they are going to do it exactly how God wanted it to be done. First Kings 6.38 says the temple was completed in the eighth month. This clearly says that this feast and the dedication of the temple takes place in the seventh month, so we assume it's 11 months of preparation time. But preparation for the king of kings and lord of lords to come is not, is not something that you want to take quickly. Throw, just throw it together. Um, obviously, it took seven years to build the temple. They took a lot of time to make sure it was, it was correct. So preparation for the sovereign's arrival and gathering all of the subjects. That's verses 2 to 4. Now we get into verse 5 and gathering all of the components. Okay, so let's look at that. Verse five. <clears throat> and they brought up the ark, which is going to be the center, which is how chapter five is going to end. Um, they brought up the ark, they brought up the tent of meeting, they brought up all the holy vessels that were in the tent, and that's about seven miles away, all of where the ark, or where the tent was, not, the ark was close by, uh, but remember, seven miles away uh, is where the tabernacle was, all of the Components of the tabernacle were seven miles away. The Levites have to transport that. They had to be dedicated. They had to be consecrated um, in order to even touch those holy vessels. But you see that in verse five, they were brought up uh, up in the tent. The Levitical priests brought them up, so they're doing it the right way. Verse six, King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him. Where before the ark, they were sacrificing so many sheep and oxen. These are free will offerings, not required. Sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Later, <clears throat> they're going to count them and it's going to be 140,000 animals. I think it's 20,000 uh, bulls and 120,000 sheep. So they can count them. So it has to be probably more than that. There's so many sacrifices because this is you are preparing for the sovereign king of the universe's arrival. All right, a big, big deal in Israel's history. Verse seven, then the priests brought uh, the Ark of the Covenant, because only the priests were allowed to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place. They're putting that in place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place. If you remember when I taught... um, probably Exodus and Leviticus, they would never have carried the Ark of the Covenant exposed so you could see what it was. They had, they had a covering over it. And so people couldn't see it. They knew what it was. They knew underneath that is the Ark of the Covenant. That is our most <laughs> precious possession of all of our worship is going to be around that Ark of the Covenant. But it was covered and then they weren't allowed to see it. So the priests cover it. They transport it. It's a wonderful occasion. They watch it go into this newly constructed temple. And remember, inside that Holy of Holies, everything's covered in gold, 600 talents. We said over a billion dollars worth of gold covering the Holy of Holies, the most holy place here. And they're carrying it, verse 7 continues, into the most holy place um, underneath the wings of the cherubim. All of this was designed so that the centerpiece of the temple, like the tabernacle, was the Ark of the Covenant. Verse eight, the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles. and the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place, which is um, the outer part of the of the inside of the temple before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. So, if there were doors and there was a curtain, you could see where the poles were touching the curtain, and uh, could tell that, that the ark was in there because the poles were uh, were seen from the holy place. All right, so that is all the opponents, all the components. The, the parts of the tabernacle were brought, all the leaders are offering sacrifices willingly. You can see how many sacrifices can it be counted or numbered. And then the focal point of the temple clearly is the most holy place. And finally, the ark is in its place. All right. And then so that's all preparation for the sovereign's arrival. All the subjects are there. All the people, all the components are there. uh, The pieces of furniture. And now we get into verses um, 10 through 14. What are we expecting? We're expecting God to arrive. And that's what we get in verses 10 to 14. And explaining what was in the Ark of the Covenant, nothing's in there except the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the only thing inside of the Ark of the Covenant are the two tablets of stone that Moses put there. You may remember that a few other components like the urn of manna or Aaron's rod that budded. That's Exodus 16, about the manna, and uh, Numbers 17, Aaron's rod that budded whenever he was thought to not be the only one that God spoke through, and and God distinguished between Aaron and Cora, Dathan, and Abiram, and others that, that challenged Aaron's leadership as priest. That was all put to rest when his rod budded in Numbers 17. Both of those, if you read them, it says that the urn of manna and Aaron's rod were before the ark. So it doesn't say that they were inside the ark. You think of how big the ark of the covenant was, it's likely that the rod wouldn't have been fit in there, but they often transported them together. So they kept those three the ark of the covenant, the urn of manna, and the, Ar- the um, budding rod together so that they transported together. They were in the holy place together. But by this time, we don't know what happened to the earned man, and we don't know what happened to uh, Aaron's rod. And it's not like they're hey, who has Aaron's rod? <laughs> it's likely for that generation, the generation that came out of Egypt and questioned authority. Anytime they could question authority, well, we have Aaron's rod that butted. Aaron is the high priest; no one can question that. How does God provide? And until. Uh, and they have that golden urn of manna to remind them of how God provided. But at some point uh, in the 300 years or so after, um, that they don't have 400 years after, they don't have it anymore. And I'm assuming they don't need it anymore because they would, <laughs> they 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 don't have it. All right. So that's Exodus 16, number 17, uh, where you see those two other things were mentioned with the ark. Uh, verse eleven, and when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves, without regard to their divisions. Remember the divisions that uh, are mentioned. I don't have a, I don't, I don't remember where the divisions are mentioned. There's twenty four divisions. We know Zachariah, uh, John the Baptist's father is is part of the twenty first division. I believe that they took. Uh, uh, two weeks at a time, and were there uh, ministering, and so they took turns, and there were divisions, 24 divisions, but all 24 divisions are present here. Uh, It doesn't matter if it's their time of year to serve, they all are here um, consecrated themselves, because you can imagine if you're sacrificing animals without number, you're going to have to have priests without number. (laughs) It takes a a lot of uh, manpower to sacrifice animals, get them on an altar, burn them up, remove the remains, another animal on the altar. And it's just constant. Um, That was what was going on while they're consecrating this uh, temple. Verse 12 and all the biblical singers. So not just the priests who are doing uh, the sacrifices uh, inside the temple with the altar of incense and outside uh, with the animals. You also have Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun. I think you'll see Asaph and Heman in the Psalms as uh, writers of some of the Psalms. Uh, Jeduthun and their sons and kinsmen arrayed in fine linen with cymbals and harps. So they got instruments. Liars stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. So we don't know how many people were in this choir and the orchestra but we know how many trumpeters there were so imagine 120 people with trumpets uh, one trumpet's loud enough but you put 120 guys together that are all playing the trumpet it's pretty loud okay so they've got sacrifices going they've got all these priests uh, serving uh, with the sacrifices then you have singers and an orchestra uh, like and then you got trumpeters. And singers here in verse 13, it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison. So what are they saying? This is the focal point of the passage. What are they saying? In unison, they're praising and giving thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, and here is what they're saying The Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. As you read through the Psalms, you'll see many of the Psalms have this at the beginning and sometimes at the end as well. This is the theme of many of the Psalms that Israel would sing throughout their history. And as they gathered to worship at the temple, in unison, regardless of their 24 divisions of priests, regardless of who's the singers, who's the musicians, who's um, transporting the ark, who is offering all the sacrifices, everybody is together. And if you were to listen to them sing and praise the Lord, they're saying, God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Very powerful unison, praising and thanking God. Why are they praising God? He's good. And his steadfast love endures forever. What has Israel had to endure to get to this place? They've had to endure captivity in Egypt for 400 years. After they conquer the promise and they had 300 plus years of judges where sometimes they were in freedom sometimes they were slaves of Midianites and Canaanites and other people that were taking their food and causing them to worship Baal and then they had to endure King Saul's reign of 40 years um, where he is killing priests at times whenever that those priests were helping David and the Philistines conquer uh, at Saul's death and kill their king And then they've got David who is constantly fighting. And finally, finally, after hundreds of years, they have political rest. They have spiritual rest. How David's kingdom ends and Solomon's begins is a time of unity, um, of land, unity, of focus. And they're able to, at this point in their history, to have all the promised land conquered. And they're able to focus with all those people In one spot, they're able to say, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Unfortunately, this unity doesn't last long. It just goes downhill from here. It's sad, but we can learn from it. How does God respond to this unison, this unity, this praise, this worship? emphasizing in verse 13 the house the house of the lord was filled with a cloud now if you knew your history you would remember how god led and protected israel in in the wilderness for 40 years it was the cloud it was the cloud that protected them from the egyptians at the side of the red sea it was God's presence that all of Israel tented, gathered around that cloud, and when that cloud moved off the tabernacle, oh, it's time to travel. They wandered around for 40 years, but it was God's cloud, his presence, that was the focal point of Israel, of humanity, and they worshiped around that cloud. How do we know that the, that the Lord is pleased with our worship? And Israel knows that God is pleased when he comes and him coming is a highlight of all the old Testament that he comes and he's the, the earth or the, uh, the place on earth here, the temple is filled with this cloud so that the priest could not stand a minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. If you compare this with the end of Exodus, Exodus 40, when they finished constructing the tabernacle, a very similar thing happened. That was a tabernacle that was ready, that was temporary, um, and that was a smaller group of people. I'm going to assume this group of people is much bigger. All of the people in the promised land, the men, are here worshiping. So when a unified group of people focus on praising the Lord for his goodness and his steadfast love enduring forever, it is a taste of heaven on earth. If we compare this, not just with the past, but the future, and look at Revelation 4 and 5, and then Revelation 21 and 22, you will see a lot of parallels where everybody is around the throne in Revelation 4 and 5, and they are praising the Lord because he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And all of us are going to be in heaven only because he is good and his steadfast love has endured forever to us. See, in the Old Testament, the unity here is at the dedication of the temple and the unity at the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, a generation before was a shadow of the unity, and merely a shadow of the unity, it's going to be pale in comparison to what, how many, maybe uh, millions upon millions of people in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5. And when God's people are gathered around him and worshiping him, as we should be on a weekly basis, what is the result? We gather as God's people and we praise him because he's good and his steadfast love endures forever. You know what happens? Everything outside of here doesn't really matter. Does election matter? No, it doesn't. Why? Because we don't praise a president like God gets praised here. They're not praising Solomon. He knows he's one of the greatest kings ever. He doesn't get this kind of praise. Only God gets this kind of praise. And only God has steadfast love that endures forever. So when God's people gather around to worship him, nothing else on earth matters, but praising the Lord for his goodness and his steadfast love that's going to endure forever. When we enjoy that, that's truly living. That's where we're going in heaven And when we are doing that in heaven, (laughs) nothing else matters. We're not going to be concerned with our mansion or our harp or whatever else that you think heaven's going to be like. We're going to be worshiping like this because he's good and his steadfast love endures forever. And it's never going to get old. It's going to be perfect.